All right, welcome to We The Blueprint with uh, my co-host Ant. We got a special guest today, Samuel Glickman. We're here at Provado Grooming. Is it Provado Grooming by Sam? Provado Grooming. Just Provado Grooming. Provado Okay. I'm trying to sit cool. <laughs> so just don't mind me. So tell everybody uh, about this space we're in right now. Um, well, right now we're actually sitting on the uh, new event space we have here in the back, which is um, basically a 800 square foot dip with a nice little bar, uh, just a little added addition to the barbershop, uh, bring in some extra revenues. Uh, we'll also be hosting workshops and little small entities, uh, sorry, little small intimate parties. Uh, but other than that, this, this is you know, our way of just kind of being creative, um, you know, around what we do for a living, right? Uh, other than that, um, the barbershop is uh, is split up into seven different hybrid suites. Um, and so everybody has 80 square feet of working space. We still have the camaraderie of the barbershop uh, with uh, exclusivity at the same time. Um, Location-wise, we are in the most historical area in Atlanta. This is the west side of Atlanta. It's uh, better known to most as Vine City. Um, right across the street is English Ave, so I'm really on the borderline of Vine City and English Avenue. Um, Martin Luther King's house is literally uh, probably 10, I can't, the exact number, but 10 to 15 houses down on the right, down there. Uh, which is not the house he was born at. Everybody thinks Martin Luther King, with his house where he was raised, was on uh, Auburn Avenue, which is where he was born and raised. But the house where he raised his kids, the house that got shot up, the house where a cross was burned in the front yard, uh, that's right here on Sunset. Uh, right next door to that house is where Maynard Jackson was born. A lot of people don't know that. Um, also, Gladys Knight was born right here, Glad uh, right here on Sunset in Magnolia very first civil rights meeting that ever took place in the South took place right here on Sunset in this little house right across the street from the uh, building right here. We call it the castle. So a lot of history right here on the west side. Um, we're literally a quarter mile away from downtown. Um, you know, we're in the process of, of revitalization. Um, so yeah, a lot of good stuff going on over here. I'm, I'm raising the standard for black commerce on the west side. Uh, you know, trying to bring it back to what it was first or originally known for uh, back in the day. This was our Black Wall Street over here uh, in Atlanta. This is where all the black businesses were. Um, so, yeah. Well, we still do the podcast, so forgive me, but I guess we need to backtrack. Okay. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, man, we're free. Sam yeah. Blakeman. Uh, I'm not going to say world-renowned barber, but a world-renowned barber. Awesome. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, you've been cutting how long? Uh, this is year 28 for me. Okay, yeah. 28. So, just to give uh, a little background, it's, it's out there on the internet for people that want to look it up. I don't want you to get the whole story because I've seen it in other podcast videos or whatever. But yeah. you from Pasadena? From, originally from Pasadena, California. Right. Mother of politician. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what's interesting is you actually had the keys to the shop at 18 years old. I was handed the keys. So, of course, we're in the city right now. We're outside, so that bus. And, and, right. <laughs> but yeah, I was handed the keys um, at 18 years old. Had no clue what ownership was about. Um, 
And you, and you, you, you dropped out, right? High school dropout. Yeah, I dropped out of high school. I was going to barber school actually in high school at the same time. Um, I got my barber license uh, the end of my junior year and decided I was not going back to school my senior year. Okay, okay. Um, and uh, yeah, I was firm about that. So, you know, I. Uh, and how did that play out? Um, with, 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 your, with your mom? Oh, mom's wasn't having it. No, mom's was not having it, man. But you know what? What's crazy about that is my mom supported me um, in this. She knew I was going to be successful in this. She started grooming me as an owner at 13. Um, and so although I was being dropped off at the barbershop as a kid and, and growing up in that environment, my mother turned my ba my basement into a barbershop. Okay. Um, she didn't want us cutting hair in the, uh, in the kitchen. At that time, I had two other friends that I influenced into cutting hair as well and so it was it was three of us and so she built the barbershop in the basement man when I say built that means she just bought some mirrors mirrors right. and some lights and, and some stools right. and gave us the space man and so at 13 I technically was managing a barbershop even though we weren't really making any money right. uh, but I was in control of the atmosphere you know and lo and behold um is what I made a decision then that I was going to go to barber school. So they finally allowed me to go to barber school at uh, at 15. Uh, back then, you only had to be seventh grade educated. Um, you didn't have to have a high school diploma or a GED. So it was just, I was just fortunate, and uh, it took me two and a half years because I was going part time. So I was putting in a couple hours a day, five days a week, going after school. When I finally graduated, I made it up in my mind. I didn't realize. I mean, I, I came to this conclusion that really school wasn't, wasn't going to do anything for me. I'm a licensed barber now. I already knew what I wanted to do. Um, so, I, uh, yeah, I dropped out. Mom's wasn't having it. But what did, but I mean, what she could do about it. So, she took you to the barbershop every weekend, I guess. Every weekend. Every weekend. Yeah. So, what did you think was going on? <laughs> I mean, you know, you know what? I think in her mind, though, she her dropping me off of the trouble or well, not even that, man. I think in her mind, it was it was us being exposed to me. Okay. Um, and so, you know, the culture of the barbershop uh, back then, it's, it's a little different now, uh, but the culture of the barbershop back then is if you wanted to be a man, you needed to be around men. Right. Uh, and where was the best place to do that? At the barbershop, right? And so every kind of a man that you can think of is going to come in that barbershop. So I think that was really her... My father wasn't in the picture, so uh, you know. He, well, let me say this: he was in the picture, but he wasn't in the picture. I right. knew him. Um, we actually saw him every now and then, and and, and would hang out to a degree. Um, great man, just uh, wasn't a great parent, you know, at that time. And so, you know, my mother raised us, man, and uh, her idea of, of exposing us to manhood, I think, was the barbershop. So yeah, it, it, I don't even think she was thinking, okay, I hope they become barbers one day, or what if they become barbers and get influenced? Because my brother didn't go that route. Okay. You know, she was dropping both of us off. Yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, I think for me, it was just the influence of a white smock, heavy starched, dress slacks, dress shoes, cash money wrapped in a rubber band, seeing the barbers hand, hand people their cash back. Right. You know, unfolding that money—that was really the influence. Like, the, I thought they were the coolest people in the world. So, yeah, it was inevitable for me. I, I was destined to be this. 
Yeah. 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 So the guys that were in the shop with you, uh, how was that? How was? How did you overcome that obstacle of you know them feeling some kind of way? So this, this young boy. Yeah, they took over. Yeah. But you know what? It was no surprise. It was more disrespect. They knew. They knew that, that was going to be my shop one day. Oh yeah, I was destined. I mean, I was that guy already in the community. I was the one cutting all the young folks. I had the reputation. Um, I was already that guy. I was working in there on the weekends. You know, um, it was just a matter of time. And they didn't know that the old men were were actually retiring at that particular time. Either. Yeah. Although they should have known, they were eighty three and eighty six years old. Got to do a nice little, uh, got to do but, a nice little snake drive. Uh, it was more of a disrespect thing. It wasn't anything that they took out on me. It was more of how they felt about the, the two gentlemen they gave me the shot. Oh, okay. um, but it was awkward on my side. Right. So it wasn't awkward yeah. for them, it was awkward on my side because I was forced to have to do business. I was the one having to collect rent. I was the one having to right. conduct at 18 years old and conduct with people that had been there for years. Yeah, here I am, this young dude taking over a shot, you know? So the awkwardness was on me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so, it. so it was no problems with grown men taking money. Nah, nah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a standard there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Boothwork was so cheap back then, either, so it was nothing to pay Boothwork. Yeah, yeah. You know how much my Boothwork was back then? How much? It was fifty bucks. This was in that was in 1994. Fifty dollars, man. So, you know. That was just good. Cuts back then we were eight dollars, man. Okay. Eight dollar okay. haircut. So, okay. you know, yeah, and walk-in environment. Yeah. So yeah, it was cheap. It, it wasn't. Right. It wasn't so this cheap. ain't really relatable. Just with my own, in my own mind, I'm picturing a young Sam, mm -hmm. uh, maybe flashy in my mind at that time. Extremely. <laughs> Flat boy. So what's the first car you bought? I had a '79 coupe. Yeah. Gold okay. with a half white vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> the half white model, the moon roof. I had the, the thirty spoke trues and bolts. Yeah. yeah, I was. Yeah, you couldn't he tell me. You couldn't tell me shit. Back, excuse my language. Right. You couldn't tell me nothing back then. Yeah. So yeah, flashy for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was my first car, man. So how many barbers was it on? Six. Yeah, it was seven of us total. Seven of us total. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what was crazy is um, the shop paid for itself. You know how much the barbershop rent was. Three hundred dollars a month. Ninety four. Oh, in nineteen ninety four, in the hood, the, the barbershop rent was three hundred dollars a month. And how long have you had that shop? Um, so from ninety four, I sold it in ninety nine. But I'm thinking back at eighteen. Yeah. Making all this money. Well, I wasn't. It wasn't really a lot of money, you know. But it, for it, eighteen, 18 year old. For eighteen year old, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, for sure. Compared to for your compared to your you know your homies. Yeah, 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 for sure. 18, you know, haircuts were $8 back then. You know how many hairs we used to have to do to, to yeah. you right. know. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I remember the day I couldn't wait to make $1,000 a week. That was a big deal. Like, when I make $1,000 a week, I'm going to be rich. Like, I used to think that way at 18 years old. Right. But what year, you know? but what year did you start making $1,000? You know what? I, I took the fast track. So probably before I moved out of here. Yeah, um, 
it probably took me a couple years to do that. Yeah. Back then, man, we would do, you know, literally over 100 beds a week. Easy. Right. Yeah. That's what I was about to say. Being an 18-year-old, your, your stamina was different. Different. Your responsibilities. Yeah. So, but so you know, it's crazy because my work ethic is still the same today. Yeah. Which is why I can put in 52 hours of work a week. And it doesn't really feel like I'm putting in 52 hours of work, you know. Right. I, I don't know. Um, I'm just kind of built like that. You know, I've been doing 6 o'clock in the morning since 1994. Since 1994, yeah. And I don't know if you've ever heard the story about why I do 6 in the morning, how I first started with that. Um, so that same barbershop I inherited, the very first Saturday, which was a big deal, and a walk-in barbershop back then, very first Saturday uh, of me being an owner, uh, the door said eight o'clock. I wanted to make sure that I was going to be at that shop on time, uh, so I got there at seven thirty. When I got there, the whole parking lot was full. See, back then, the first person that pulled up in the parking lot was the first person that was going to get a haircut. So they would start pulling up in the parking lot about five thirty in the morning yeah. to make sure they were going to be first, right? What I didn't realize is that the barbers that I inherited the shop from had been opening up that shop every Saturday morning at six o'clock, oh, even though okay. the door said eight. Right. Yeah. So you see late. There was a standard that had been yeah. set. Yeah. I was super late, man. I got cussed out. From the time <laughs> I got out the car to the time I walked to the door and opened it up, like, like yeah. they let me have it. You know, you ain't ready for this. I mean, they let me have it. Yeah. From that day on. I said, I'm going to have money. I'm going to be at work at 6 o'clock in the morning. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so fast forward to coming here to Atlanta. Yeah. You're leaving somewhere. We got plenty of clientele. You're the man, so to speak. How was it starting over? Um, it was a challenge. So when I moved here in 99, I moved out here with my wife. Then, um, I had uh, two sons. My wife was pregnant with my daughter. And yeah, I sold the shop, believe it or not, for nothing. I sold it for five thousand dollars. <laughs> so I moved out here with five thousand dollars, a pregnant wife and two kids, and, and absolutely no clients. Um, so you pretty much just sold the equipment. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, I didn't own the building, you know. Right. Uh, and so when I moved out here, man, I didn't. I was never afraid of the challenge of building a clientele, which is why I moved out here. Cause I felt like this culture was more complementing to my style of work and the way I wanted to grow. Um, what I expected out of my career, you know, further down the line, Atlanta was really that spot. Um, I uh, I wasn't intimidated, not one bit. I would say it probably took me about six months to get established. Um, so it's always seems like, man, God always places me in the right place with the right set of skills, with the right personality at the right time, you know, and it's always the right person. Uh, Dale Bronner just happened to be my first client when I moved to Atlanta. And from, from cutting Dale, I ended up cutting Bishop Long. From there, um, you know, my clientele really just took off. I started doing their members, their leadership. This is way before social media or anything. I've never had to pass out business cards or flyers um, from day one. You know, it was just, it was destined for me to be here. It, it was nothing for me to build a clientele. And we were in Stockbridge, Georgia. 
Stock Blues, Georgia. There's no black barbershops in Stock Blues. Short Georgia. We were the first ones. Me and a gentleman by the name of Tyrone Grant. So, yeah. Um, was it an obstacle? Yeah. Was I intimidated? No. Yeah, I wasn't intimidated. So give me the timeline after Stockbridge, where did you go? Um, I stayed in Stockbridge. So um, I expanded from there. Uh, I opened up the first Salon Suites, which was Sweet, sweet Styles, what name it was. That was on, uh, actually that was in Jonesboro, so it was down the street. Okay. Uh, in Jonesboro, um, I didn't last 10 months. And that's what I, that's what I wanted to talk to you about yeah. because uh, I told you on the phone mm -hmm. that Nowadays, entrepreneurship is sexy. Yeah. And everybody talks about the grind, everybody talks about the hustle. Nobody talks about sometimes when it's time to fold up and not necessarily quit, but just to take a, maybe take a step back right. and regroup and start over. You know, everybody talks about, you know, oh, you're not doing this, or you ain't doing this many hours, right. or you ain't making this amount of money, you know, something's wrong. Yeah. And sometimes it could be because with the suites you were really ahead of your time, right? I was. There, there were absolutely no salon suites um, in Atlanta, so it was it was an obstacle just trying to lease them out, you know. Uh, but I'll say this, you know, entrepreneurship is sexy. Uh, you know, entrepreneurship is is what everybody seeks after right now, and rightfully so, they should be. Right. However, um, just because something isn't working doesn't mean that it's it's a failure. You know, uh, just because something's not working doesn't mean that you can't start over. Right. And I think something gets lost in uh, the timing of, uh, from the time that you open and assessing it to the time where you realize you're struggling and that you're not going to be able to get out of this. And the only option is to close, right? Uh, I told you I didn't last 10 months. I shouldn't have lasted six months. My ego kept it open an additional four months. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so, with my ego keeping it open an additional four months, I was afraid of what everybody else was going to think about this $70,000 investment that I put into this business. Not to mention, this was my life savings. So, my wife, who was at the house uh, at that time with, with three kids, because my, my, my daughter had been born, she was now pregnant with my fourth child. <laughs> so, yeah, pregnant with my fourth child. And here I am investing my entire life savings, but watch this. I actually talked one of my clients into investing with me. And so between all of what I had plus what he invested with me, I told it up to a little over $70,000, man, beautiful space. And $70,000 in 2001, I'm sorry, 2000, yeah, 2001, 2002, that was a lot of money, right. you know, uh, to put into a space. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I say ego, you know, trying to face your wife, going home and, and being looked at as the guy that, that, that spent your entire life savings and we pregnant with another child on the way. Right. You know, and three children at the house and she's a housewife and not bringing in any revenues. It was a big deal. Yeah. It was yeah. a big deal. Um, and so psychologically, you want to exhaust every effort. Unfortunately, when you're in the midst of a struggle like that and things aren't working, it's extremely hard to be creative. Right. And so that's when you have to be faced with assessing the decision to hold it or fold it. Right. Uh, and so it was a big learning lesson, man, for me. Um, I realized that when I finally made the decision to fold it, it was a huge burden lifting. But prior to me making the decision, what helped it is me explaining to my wife that either I can fold it now and regroup and 
take care of home, or I can try to sustain this, and, 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 and we lose everything. You know, and it was a it was a common sense decision. Then. You know, it was more of why are we why are you still in there? You know what I'm saying? You know, the other the other thing I was facing is uh, having to maintain a relationship with the person who believed in my vision and decided to invest his money in with it. Um, and how am I going to maintain that relationship, knowing that I'm not going to be in a position to pay him back? And not only am I not going to be in a position to back, I'm not going to propose an alternative to paying back. Right. Because I didn't have it. You know, at that time, it was time for me to focus on my family. We both lost. Right. Uh, and so, it, you know, it was a learning lesson. Um, uh, I discovered then, man, that it was so much freedom uh, and release and just letting go. And uh, and from that day, man, I, it's, it's, you know, I've never been afraid to start something uh, because I'm not afraid to fold it if it's not working. If something's not working, I'm letting it go. The difference is, is, is I don't let it go that long. I assess everything, you know. What are some of the things you assess? Uh, you know, from a simplicity, uh, from a simple standpoint, you know, let's just use this business for instance. In my first 30 days, I had projections. Did I meet those projections? You know, based on the analytics, you know, did I have the amount of clients walking through the door that I projected? Um, and based upon those clients, how many of them came back? You know, uh, did I have the amount of barbers in here to lease from me uh, within the first 30 days that I expected? And if I didn't, how was that going to affect my business? You know, uh, one of the things that I went into this with is capital. I knew my capital was my business that I already had previously established on my own. So regardless to what this building could generate, I knew what I could personally generate, which is something I couldn't say back then. Right, so going into this, if all else fails, I know I can handle this. I gave myself a time. How long do I want to handle this by myself? How long do I want to sacrifice for my household and my income to sustain something that's not working? And so I gave myself a six-month period, right? Um, this was a little bit different because based upon what I was personally making, uh, which is good money, um, I was willing to take some bigger risks. So... What was I willing to do to stand on my own two feet without having an investor? Right. Because I never want to go through that again. What was I willing to do to stand on my own two feet without having a partner? Because I knew I didn't want to do that. My wife was my partner, right? So if there was going to be a partner, it was going to be my wife at this point. Um, so what was I willing to do to stand on my own two feet? Well, I was willing to take out some loans, right? Uh, based upon what my revenues were and what I was generating, I was able to borrow a significant amount. And I was putting myself in a position not only to pay the rent, but also to take care of those loans. Right. And so that six months was real. If I didn't generate the revenues I needed to generate within those six months, uh, I was going to make a decision. But that decision was going to be based upon a 30-day assessment every, every 30 days. So every 30 days, even though my common sense said, yeah, we had X amount of people come here, yeah, we were making money, I needed to see it for myself on paper. Thank God we have software now. It's something we didn't have back then, right? So we have software. In my case, I use Squire. Um, and so I have all the analytics before me. I can see what every barber is doing. I can see what I'm generating. I can see what I'm even paying out now uh, in commissions or in booth rent or in suite rental. You know, I can set it up. However, I want to set it up within our system. And so analytically, 
every 30 days this business was being assessed. Uh, so that's just from a, from a simple standpoint. Uh, I won't give myself six months to assess my business. I'm giving myself six months to make a decision, but that's gonna be based upon a monthly assessment. Right. You know, so I need to see six months of growth, right? Or six months of going, going the opposite direction. And that'll determine whether I need to make a decision. You know, and six months is realistic, uh, especially if you have the capital to sustain it. So, yeah. But watch this, just because you have it to sustain it doesn't mean that you need to keep it sustained. Yeah, it doesn't make sense feeding, uh, uh, you know, uh, a pit bull that's never going to grow. Right? If, if I buy a pit bull at six weeks and I'm expecting him to grow to 100 pounds, and he's not growing to 100 pounds, I mean, he's not growing past 20 pounds, and he's at eight months, he, he must be sick. Something ain't right. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna stop feeding this dog. So it's, you know, I don't know if that's a good analogy, but <laughs> that's my mindset. It's right. like, you know, we're bulldogs when it comes to business. If it's not working, you gotta be bold enough to shut it down, right? Or shelf it. Um, the thing is, is you can't put yourself in a position where you're struggling so much that the creativity's not there. And, and it's just, it's impossible, man. It's really hard to be creative because you're battling different things from a mental health standpoint. Right. When you're in the midst of a struggle, trying to take care of a home, trying to take care of a business, uh, trying to take care of your clients, you know, trying to show face, it, it's just it's too difficult. And then you got to be creative outside of that. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's, it's it's rough. Um, and so, uh, only the strong survive. Yeah. But you survive by making some serious decisions. You know. And, and you said you touched on something when you said mental health. Uh, we talk about it all the time that. Mm -hmm. uh, Barbershop is probably one of the uh, greatest places of misinformation <laughs> that there is, you know. And uh, what I like about the sweet situation is, you know, you, you're a guy, you got some sense on your head, so if a guy comes in, he's dealing with something, he's talking to you and pretty much you alone, you know right. what I mean? You're a good guy, you can give him some advice, whereas in our situation, you know, we're in a typical shop, you know, six chairs, so if somebody come in with a situation, before he or I can say anything, somebody chime in with something stupid, you know, might be having an issue with his wife or whatever, you know. Right. Before you can say anything, man, you need to leave. You don't need to take care of him. Like, hold up, brother. <laughs> right. 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 You know what I mean? So, uh, right. you know, I, I really think that uh, as, as barbers, we have to uh, really take our position serious. And really think, because, you know, a lot of times we just take it as for banner but some people are like really coming in you know they, they exclusively not just coming to you for the cut but they come in to, you know Sam can give you something well I mean let's talk about that right because men traditionally don't like to open up anyway so the barbershop has always been the safe haven event um, sometimes sometimes in their joking they're being real right right but they try to come off like they're joking because they're in the midst of other men right um, but you know it's also been that space where, where we aren't necessarily prepped to cancel, you know, or we don't feel like we're in a position to cancel, right? Um, and so for our culture, I can't speak for every other culture, but for our culture, it's one thing to be a man and dealing with that. It's another thing to be a black man and dealing with that because we feel like we have all the answers. We feel like we can handle it. We feel like we can deal with it. We feel like we can fix it. Um, and there has never really been that, that, that great example of what fixed looks like, right? Everybody's situation is different. And so, you know, to get 
uh, answers out of the barbershop, sometimes it comes off as a subliminal joke. Right. And you're hoping to get answers out of that because you don't want it to be real, right? Mm -hmm. But now we're getting a little woke. Now we're becoming aware. Now we realize that there is such a thing called mental health. Uh, so much so that it's a popular word, you know, it's a popular phrase. Uh, you know, we got to take care of our mental health. Right. You know, it's not just our physical, but it's our mental. Um, dude, we're like counselors, we're like psychiatrists. You know, we take on so many different conversations throughout the day. We never realize that we're actually taking all of that home with us. You know, yeah, we take a lot of that home with us, man. And, and, and if our home structure isn't straight, now we're compounding stress. The right. stress from the job, the stress from the house. And we're compounding that. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And and if we're not strong, mentally broke, we'll shut down. Yeah. You know, and so it's 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 a thing that's that's common now. Um, I'm glad it's being talked about. Right? We we're, we're partnering up with a group this weekend actually. Um, that's actually educating barbers on how to conduct mental health conversations. Uh, which I thought was unique, you know. Uh, so they're actually partnering up with us. They're going to give us literature, uh, but they're also going to give literature to our clients uh, that helps them feel free about elaborating to the barbers, right? Letting them know that this is a safe space, you know. Um, so I I'm just glad that it's being talked about. It's being talked about. It's being discussed, you know. Um, man, it's so much that we're we're becoming familiar with now concerning our bodies, our diets, our mental health, our psyche, you know. But as a barber, I got this question. What is our relief? Yeah, you know, that's to each his own, right? So you have to find that. Um, my relief is waking up on Saturday mornings now, and my wife loves to cook me breakfast. Uh, tell me why Saturday mornings. Well, Saturday, it's just, Saturday, it's just it, now it's psychological, right? Um, my wife is off every Saturday and Sunday. She goes back to work on Monday. So just being able to share those same two days off with her. You off too is, on Saturday. I'm off on Saturday, right? Which is a decision I just recently made. Um, that's That was my attempt for work-life balance in 2021, right? And so for 2021, I wanted to wake up next to my wife on a Saturday morning for psychological reasons. I wanted to see what it felt like. That's different when you take a vacation and you miss a, a Saturday. Right. But now, knowing that Friday is the last day of your work week, and that you're gonna actually wake up to your wife, and if you're not married, that you're actually sleeping in on a Saturday morning for or psychological purposes, or whatever. or whatever it is. It's just, it's just a different feeling, right? Versus waking up on a Monday, knowing your wife didn't went to work, and knowing everybody else is at work, and, and, and you don't have a weekend. It's something about the weekend, right? right? And so for the first time in 28 years, bro, I, I feel like I actually have a weekend. Right. So that was my attempt for work-life balance, but also mental health. Because without that balance, without that little bit of psyche right there, um, you know, I think I'm, 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 I'm more of the same, right? And doing the same old thing and expecting a different result really defines as what? Insanity. Right. Um, and so, you know, I want to be sane, bro. I, I, I got four kids. I got a granddaughter. I got a grandson on the way in March. Okay. I need to be sane. So right. it's not just a matter of me wanting to. I need to. I have to be. I'm not just 
trying to make money and, 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 and build all of this stuff, you know, I talked about buying all this land uh, behind here and develop. I'm not just doing that for my psyche. Right. I'm trying to build generational wealth. And so that's one of the things that helps me go to sleep at night. You know how hard it is to go to sleep at night knowing that all that you're working for is just going towards your bills? That, that's an uncomfortable you know? <laughs> Yeah, but it's an uncomfortable feel, right? right? Yeah. And so to, to, to feel like everything I'm working for is just paying bills and I have nothing left to build generational wealth. That's tough, bro. Yeah, so so let's talk about generational wealth. So you got four kids. Mm -hmm. Um, and a granddaughter and a grandson. Grand, okay. So six. <laughs> six. Six C. Are they interested in the barber business? No, no. Uh -huh. No, no. Do um, you want your sons? Uh, at one time, I thought it would be cool. Um, what I'm more concerned about now, so barbering is what I do. It's not who I am. Right. Right? Uh, my kids see me as an entrepreneur. They see me as a serial entrepreneur now. Um, they're influenced by my entrepreneurial thought process. So much so that my two oldest sons are entrepreneurs. Okay. Okay. So my oldest son is in real estate. He's also into real estate investing now. Um, he does work a full-time job, uh, but that's his thing, real estate. Uh, so this land that I'm actually buying back here, he's actually the agent for it. Okay. Um, he's actually doing all the negotiations. He's actually learning through this process. Uh, and he'll be my partner in this development as well. Right. Um, and so that's the first phase. Uh, my other son is actually in the junk removal business. He has two trucks, two trailers, and doesn't even have enough time to get a haircut. Uh, that's how busy this guy is. But where did they get that from? Right. What made them want to graduate from school and say, oh, I, I want to open up my own business? Right. It's, it's, it's a learned behavior. That's all they know right. is entrepreneurship, right? Uh, my daughter, however, has in her mind that she's not going to open up a business, but she's going to work for one of us. <laughs> so, it's, right. it's, you know, so it's all in the family. It's all in the family. It's, so, it's already in her mind. My youngest son okay. says, I'm going to school. Well, why are you going to school, son? I really want to know why you're going to school. Right. And what you taking up? I'm taking up business. Well, what are you taking up in business? I want to be a financial analyst. Why? Because I want to assess your business. He always hears me use the word assess. Right. So automatically now he's just using this word assess as if he knows what he's talking about. Right. But obviously he has some sense enough to know that if my business is going to grow, I'm going to need his knowledge. Right. So to, to, to be smart enough at 18 to say, one day I'm going to take over your business. I'm going to run it. Right. You know, that's a blessing. To me. It makes me feel like what I'm doing now is not in vain. Right. All of it, I got to go harder now because I got to have something for him to take over. Right. Yeah. I got to go harder now because I need my son to be able to handle this real estate deal because there's going to be more to come. Right. I got to go harder now because, you know, with all of this real estate, my son having this junk removal business, I need him to remove all the debris. Right. I need him to have these contracts, you know, and so it's just... So they don't have to be interested in the barbering business. No. Nah. what you have is, barbering, is real estate. Barbering is what... Exactly. Barbering is what I do. Right. It's not who I am. It's not who we are as a family. Right. We're entrepreneurs, you know, and so, which is why I started the company Blackcom. Okay. Blackcom is short for Black Commerce. I'm so in love and so psyched and so hungry for black commerce that I want to see black people win. Right. Starting with me, starting with my family. I mentioned the book, Think and Grow Rich and Black Choice, right? Of all the great stories that we read about of black success, one of the things that we can't take away from those stories are family inheritances. So with all the success, we can count on one hand how many black families in America 
actually left a real inheritance and their kids are actually still running that inheritance. We can count it on one hand. Out of all the black success stories in the entire country. Why is it? It's because we just, we, we, we didn't know. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, is that on the parents' end or is that on the kids' end? It's both. both. It's both. Yeah. It's a learned behavior. Yeah. It's, it's nobody selling the dream. It's, it's, it's not even realizing that you have a dream to sell. Right. You know, you got to think about how many of our grandparents were uneducated. You know, I talk about how I'm a high school dropout. Well, that's normal for, for, for my grandfather. You know, that's normal for his father. That's normal for all of our grandparents. You know, it, it's, that was a real thing right. to take care of the family. You know, and so it becomes abnormal in the time where we've been taught to graduate from high school and go get this college degree so that you can go get a job and work for somebody else. We were never painted the picture that we can actually work for ourselves. Not only that, but dad, you can take over my company. Yeah. I'm sorry, dad, I can take over your company or son, you can take over my company. I got a, a, a guy here that sells all of my janitorial goods. Paper towels, tissue. He's been doing this since I've been here for the last 20 years. Mr. Lewis. He doesn't just take care of me, he takes care of a lot of black businesses right here. Watch this. Mr. Lewis has absolutely no employees. Mr. Lewis is 76 years old now. Still dropping off these paper towels and this tissue. How many black folks do you know that are managing linen companies? Managing, managing these janitorial supplies? Working for these huge companies that are that are furnishing these restaurants, right? And here it is, Mr. Lewis all by himself doesn't have anybody to pass this business on to. His kids are off being attorneys and being everything else. Thought what he was doing wasn't impressionable. Right. But here he is, during the pandemic, was the only one that had supplies. But in a couple of years, who is that business going to be passed on to? Yeah. I have two clients right now that manage businesses just like him. But those businesses are owned by white people. Right. And matter of fact, one of them is a Fortune 500 company. And they're so concerned about scaling up in those companies, they haven't even thought about a business that they can actually take over and do the same exact thing as the companies they work for. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's naive. Like nobody's painting the picture, right? And so it's easy for me to say, hey, Mr. Lewis, I want to introduce you to this person right here. Mr. Lewis, this person can take your business to the next level. Right. This person right here, I can sell them on the concept of taking over Mr. Lewis' business so much so that they actually have the money to buy it, right? But I can almost guarantee you this, Mr. Lewis probably would not sell it. Right. Because he doesn't understand right. the big picture. And so it's a little bit of both. Right. We, nobody's painting the picture for us. You know, so why did I start BlackCon? Because it's time that the picture gets painted. I need to paint the picture of what black commerce looks like. Just because you're black and you have a business doesn't mean that I'm supposed to support you. Right. There are a lot of black businesses that don't deserve, that don't deserve our revenues. Right? They don't deserve our commerce. They don't deserve it. But there are a whole lot of them in that do. And we need to be familiar with them. So much so that we should be looking into uh, the interests of those companies. We should be trying to invest in those companies. We should be trying to talk them out of some of these companies or scaling them up or taking them to another level but we don't have these conversations we don't even seek after them we're so busy trying to buy apple stock we're so busy worrying about how much tesla is scaling up we're so focused on on what they're doing but we got we got community businesses man that if we just spent 30 minutes a day with them man we can we we, we got millionaires right here 
just touch on some toes with that apple. I mean, yeah. it, it, but, it's, <laughs> but it's real, yeah. and I'm yeah. guilty of it. Yeah. Right? We're all guilty of it, bro. But it's this: our investment dollars can be channeled in so many different directions. Right. Right. This development. You know, we're building not just because we're capable of building uh, uh, townhomes and, and, and lofts, but we're building it because we got to get ahead of gentrification. We have to be the first ones to say, this is not gentrification over here, this is revitalization. Right. Starting with black commerce. Are we going to have retail here? Of course. Guess who that retail is going to be occupied by? Black commerce. You know how many black franchise owners want to do business on the west side? But the west side isn't appealing right now. So who's going to cater to them? You know, we've worked hard to buy franchises, but we can't even open them up on our own side of town. Right. You know, why is that? You know, so it's there are a whole lot of things that I think we need to discuss in the sense of commerce, but nobody, again, is painting the picture. And I think we have a responsibility to do so, man. We have resources now. You know how easy it is for us to start a company? You know how easy it is for you guys to start this podcast and us to generate this dialogue? It's that easy nowadays. Right. We used to get persecuted for these conversations. You know, we used to get hung for these kind of conversations. How dare you, you, you try to build something in Rosewood? You know, how dare you try to build something in Tulsa, Oklahoma? You know, how dare you try to build something in Charleston, South Carolina? How dare you own the docks in Charleston, South Carolina? How dare you own the rail yards in Tulsa, Oklahoma? Like, these things are, are things we used to get hung for. You know, our neighborhoods got burnt down. They got, you know, people got lynched. For being, for being common, for being relevant, for being, uh, 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 you know, provocative in a good way, like you know, to provoke commerce, to provoke commerce in your own community, bro, that's genius. Right. But they didn't want us to win, and so now we're at a time where there is no excuse. We're banking black, right? We're borrowing black. We're lending black. You know, three different things there. Yeah. But we're able to do that. Listen, when we go and and fill out a credit report to get a loan now, it has nothing to do with our color. It has everything to do with the algorithm. There is no loan committee anymore. Right. We used to go to a bank, we used to have to submit a whole business plan, and then the bank would have to take that to the loan committee, and they would have to decipher whether this loan, this this business plan is good enough to, 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 to invest in, right? right? And based upon your color, they would really make a decision. Now, we don't have to go through that. It's all about our credit. Right. So. The, the whole myth of we don't have equal opportunity, thats I don't know where that comes from, because we have it. Are we taking advantage of it? You know? so, when, so when it relates to our business, what are the things that... Uh, our business as in the barber business. As in the barber okay. business. Uh, what are the things that, that you would recommend or that you would like to see for us to do to gain? Because pretty much we talk about is ownership. Yeah. Uh, what are some things that we need to do yeah, so, to move that forward? Yeah, stretch our thought process by engaging in more business conversations, right? Uh, uh, increasing our, our, our network uh, by networking with people outside of the industry, right? Which is, which is the first step of diversification, right? You just can't hang around barbers. Right. Because if you just hang around barbers, and if you don't notice, uh, in Clubhouse, if you just go into the chat rooms where it's just barbers and beauticians, all you're gonna be talking about is barber, is barber stuff and, right. and, 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 you know, uh, but you got to tap into some other networks. You got to tap into some other resources. Um, our clientele base is our first resource, right? Uh, so establishing those relationships, building on those relationships, tapping into. Uh, I'm hosting a fundraiser for Mayor Short, uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom because uh, she's running for mayor. How did that? Where did that come from? Well, it came from a client. Yeah. 
a client knowing uh, and understanding what I'm trying to do that understands how things work. And guess what he says? You need to host a fundraiser. You need to gather all the black entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs in the city of Atlanta, and you need to introduce them to Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom. She needs to be familiar with young black entrepreneurs that want to have a voice in the city. You know how easy it is for me to do that? Based upon my general network, starting with the Georgia Barbers Network, that's real easy to do. So it's little things like that. Like that information came by way of me tapping in. But now I'm going to go on and host this fundraiser. Well, who else am I going to meet at this fundraiser? Right. And what kind of status is that really going to put me in now as a fundraiser for for uh, 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 the highest position in our city? <laughs> you know, of a major city of six million plus. You know, what does that do? Uh, influential on the south side, I'm sorry, on the west side of Atlanta. A young entrepreneur. That makes me more than a barber now. Right? That makes me more than a barbershop owner. Right. Now we're talking commerce. Now we're talking politics. Now we're talking a voice. We have a voice. Which means that our investment dollars aren't in vain. You know, for the first time in the history of my entire adult life, I feel like my vote actually counted. And I'm talking general election now. That then turned around and resulted into uh, U.S. Senate by way of two Georgia senators and us being able to vote them in by the power of our vote. For the first time in my entire adult life, my vote actually counted because we've been living in a red state. So every single year we go into voting with hopes, only to come out with our state still being red and us feeling like our vote didn't count. But yet we still go in every single year out of respect for our forefathers and out of the optimism of what could be, for the first time, here we are with power, right? And so how do we leverage that? Here we are with a fundraiser. Here we are now with a voice. So it's little things. So I would say we have to increase our network. We have to tap into our resources. We have to become more than just what we do, right? What we do is cutting hair. That's, that's, just, that's, that's what we do, but that's not who we are. And if you just get stuck with, I'm just a barber, I think you're, you're, you're missing out. You're doing your family a disjustice, you're doing yourself a disjustice, you're doing your community a disjustice. Man, you know, the white smock meant something at, at, at one point in time. You were a tonsorial artist, which means you did more than just cut hair. Right. You know, that was, that was you, you, you remember back in the day when you watched those older movies, the, the, the veterinarian was also the dentist. The dentist was also the barber. Right. The barber was also the mechanic. He was everything, he was, right. he was doing everything. You know, we're more than just that, you know, and, and, and it starts with our influence, man. Obviously, we have people coming to our community establishments we have some type of influence, right? This is a community-oriented business. We have to leverage that as barbers. So we have more power than what we think. We just have to think outside of the box. We have to stretch that box. Yeah, yeah. You got any questions? I think we can end there right there. Yeah, we're gonna have to do a, we're gonna do a part two. Let's do it. We're gonna do a part two. It's healthy, bro.